welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I am ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan, and not just any fantasy today. Because today we're talking about an author oh. that we have worked with for quite a while. That was a late one. That was a late one. People are going to think the audio is delayed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nope, Dylan's just a little slow today, but that's all right. We'll 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 keep things moving. It's early. <laughs> it's early. And the good news is, though, guys, is I'm going to be doing a lot of the talking today because today we're talking about a book that I went rogue a while ago and decided you know what i wasn't gonna wait any longer to try and read this on the show Uh, i'm going to read it right away and i'm going to talk to dylan about it anyway even though he hasn't read it and we are talking about jonathan strange and mr norell a the debut novel of Susanna clark yeah i'm excited to get into this one i was a huge fan of piranesi by Mm -hmm. Susanna clark i actually got you to read that one and Mm -hmm. We had our pod uh, on Wednesdays. We read podcast. Come on, that's Hannah and Laura to mm-hmm. chat about Pernese. and fiction fans, but and also fiction fans. But yeah. I believe Sarah couldn't make it, so we had Lily on. And yeah, I that's been one of my favorite recently published books. But you went way back to her first book, Jonathan I went Strange, all and Mr. the way Morales. back to the distant land of two thousand and four. <laughs> When this hey, at this point, that is almost two decades away. So, <laughs> which yeah. is crazy. Remember, remember when it was like year two thousand and nineteen eighty seemed ridiculously far away. It's almost as far as the distance there, Charles. So it is mm. it is pretty far away at this point, but certainly not ancient history. I'm really looking forward to getting into this because. It's a very different book, I can mm-hmm. tell, from Piranesi. It's, first of all, it's a chonker where oh Piranesi it is, is so big. It's one of the biggest books yeah. I have. And it's not even like... How many pages? Okay, well, the version I have is this like thicker, rough-edged paper. I always forget the name of it. And it has some illustrations, but it's got to have like less than 20. And it's 782 pages. And these are not small pages. Mm. These pages are massive and contain a lot of very tiny words. So Those, yeah, small text, I can say. Small text, and it fills the page. So you are talking about, I, I mean, this can go up against any Sanderson novel for sure. It's probably bigger than most. It is a massive, massive tone. Maybe not the Stormlight Archive, but I'm sure that it's bigger than... It's up there. Uh, Mistborn and stuff like that by... Probably a hefty margin. Oh yes. So hefty. Charles, you're gonna. Would you say this qualifies as a Chihuahua killer? Would Abs- you I, let, let be me afraid just to this. leave this around? I would be in fear of. Ha- I wouldn't want this like hanging a little bit off the edge of a table <laughs> if I had small pets around. I would definitely make sure this is in the center of the table, back in the bookshelf. You know, you don't want this dangling over the edge because it's got a lot of mass, a lot of potential energy. In, in this book that you don't want to um, mm. to turn into kinetic energy. Not at all. Um, and wow. I know, right? 
physics. So right. you were in like AP physics in ninth grade. Yes. Well, right? no, in like in like my senior Ten. year, I think eleventh. Which oh, it was right. like It'll, that's not as impressive. I, I mean, it's still <laughs> AP physics, but I wasn't good at it. But I I did sit through the classes, um, so that's something. Oh, in ninth <laughs> grade, we were in bio together. E, that was tenth, right? Ninth, tenth. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Who can remember? That was back around two thousand. That was after two thousand four. That was like two thousand eight, two thousand seven. Mm. So this book had already been out, and I'd been sleeping on it, and I'd been sleeping on this book for a long, long time. But it's always like ever since we started Friends Talking Fantasy, and like we have to pick books we're gonna read next. It always kind of sat on the outside peripherals of my mind as something i think this has been on my tbr for almost like three years four years at least and it's for a lot of reasons um the first thing is everyone absolutely praises this book especially authors i've always gotten the sense that this is like a author's book like a writing like a writers love this book and that always kind of piqued my interest you know, you've you've got someone like um, Neil Gaiman, who's like the best English novel since like, you know, the classics. And you're like, holy smokes, uh, that is a huge deal. And I want to say I remember, but I couldn't find it in my research again. So I don't know if this actually happened, but I'm pretty sure it did. I think it was on YouTube. Brandon Sanderson was doing like a Q&A and he was like, that book is terrific. And I read it and I found it almost intimidating and like, you know, he had nothing but praise for it. And he was actually kind of, um, he was like, wow, I could never write like that. And I feel like a lot of people that praise this book say the same thing. It's like, I just cannot believe this book. And so I was like, okay, that's a huge pro, obviously. And then the cons are, you know, it's people describe it as super British, which I'm like, okay, that's great, but I'm not usually the guy gravitating towards like British shows content. Like, don't you know. alienate our UK <laughs> audience. Hey, Charles, hey, I love the all of the. I, I love fantasy, British? right? With so Harry Potter and uh, even like Game of Thrones, which is inspired in, in, in you know English style settings. But this was like you know, <laughs> you hear that, everyone. Charles loves books by American author George R. R. Martin, so <clears throat> I hope that helps you, UK. Hey, Joe Abercrombie, huh? Uh, Mark oh, Lawrence, we love Joe. huh? Um, mm. Mark's uh, also Mark's American though, originally. It's an expat. Yeah, well, it counts. I'm counting it. <laughs> <laughs> You're mostly naming Americans. All right, but, go on, go on. Charles. But anyway, it's Cobbs set in the 19th century England. I'll qualify it even further. So it's not swords and sorcery. It's like way, way, way later. And around the time of the Napoleonic Wars, it actually is kind of like his, like the setting portrays itself as inspired by history. It's like, okay, this was England, but what if in England magic existed kind of a thing. So that setting is not one that typically draws me in. And it's just a massive book, too, which also kind of is like, if we read this for the show, how much time are we going to need to give ourselves to allow us to read it? Um, so a couple of those things kind of kept me from actually jumping on it. Uh, I found myself over the holiday break in December. And I was like, you know what? I'm ahead on the Friends Talking Fantasy reading. I've got like two weeks 
of time where I'm not like working or anything. I think now is a good time. I had bought this beautiful hardcover with illustrations and everything. And I was like, I am going to finally read this book and see what it's all about. And honestly, I'm super glad I did. I have a lot to say about this book and we'll keep it spoiler free and we'll keep it very light. But um, my initial thoughts on it are I was very impressed um, it's a story that's not it, it's surprisingly in-depth for something that presents itself very dry and I was just blown away by the writing I was like people don't write books like this every day and you can tell that Susanna Clark one of those authors that like wrestles with every phrase probably sat with this book for a very long time and I remember Dylan we were talking about her approach to Piranesi where she's like, I just could not get in the mindset to write another book after Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. And so I just had to write this novella. And that was kind of a good dipping back in the waters of writing for me. And I could see why this would be such a hard book to follow the amount of effort and time and energy she must have put into this book. The idea of writing another one must be so daunting. So all of that is just this really fun reading experience that over the holidays, I'll say, it made me enjoy like the act of reading. I didn't do any audiobook this time. I was cover to cover in the book, um, just carve out an hour or two every once in a while to, to read through it. And I just enjoyed the, the practice of reading it. And I think that's just like a high praise to give any any book. So highly recommend to any fantasy fan and any fan of like authors like um I'm trying to think of authors that kind of pour over their prose like a uh Patrick Rothfuss or like a Rothfuss yeah like a Rothfuss like uh um even Christopher Buellman who we just read like these people who take a yeah, well. very <laughs> for totally opposite direction but actually this I book is kind of funny that, yeah. and <laughs> what's interesting about this book is as serious as it tries to present, it's also very not serious. Like, that's kind of what's interesting about it. It never takes itself seriously. Um, it finds a really unique balance that we'll get into. But yeah, first initial takeaway, if the setting is making you hesitant, if the length is making you hesitant, I highly encourage you to give it a, to give it a go anyway, because I was sure glad I was. I was hesitant for years, finally pulled the trigger, and um, very happy to have had that experience. Hmm. Oh, that is a pretty awesome sell there, Charles. Mm. I'll also say on the topic of books that might be similar, even though I haven't read Jonathan Strange, I've heard number one New York Times bestselling book of last year, Babel by mm. R.F. Kwong, described as a tonal retort to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. That's... Mm. For some reason, that shows up everywhere. It's like a tonal website and tonal retort. Yeah. Is it like particularly a violent book? Like you've read. No. uh, No? Uh, Well, okay. Well, the, you know, the subtitle is The Necessity of Violence, but the majority of the book is not overly violent, especially Mm. when you compare it to Rebecca Kwong's Poppy War (laughs) series, which is one of the more violent books we've ever read and or a series and either way i think 
it's also a magical 19th century England. So Mm -hmm. at least if the setting interests you from Babel, then you might want to go back and read Jonathan Strange because... I'd be curious to read it just to find out what the tonal retort is. I feel like we both have the opposite pieces and we're not going to get there. We love yeah. to both read both. And until then uh, we just are not going to know. So yeah, if someone has read both and they we'll think they there. know what a tonal retort is, um, reach out. <laughs> Cause it could be in jest as well. Um, one of the things I guess I'll get into kind of a high level, what this book is about. Um, like I said, it's set in the 19th century. It's set in the Napoleonic wars. Like they actually, are fighting Napoleon. Um, That's a part of this novel. Um, The whole premise is that magic had once existed in England, and today magicians are purely academic. And there's even, you know, lines about, you know, the study of magic is more virtuistic than the practice of magic, you know? So in, like, high English society, magicians just have a lot of books and meet as a society and talk about theory, but no one can actually perform any kind of magical feats. Um, And then uh, Q, Jonathan Strange, and Mr. Norell, who are two people that can actually perform real magic. And that kind of kicks off this whole story. And it presents itself in a really interesting way because it's at many, it takes on things like what I imagine English culture is like, especially around like the 1900s. You got a bunch of like snooty, like upper class people um, who spend so much time talking about stuff like magic, for example, but they've never actually done any of it. They've never performed a single piece of magic. Something as wonderful as magic, they've managed to take and turn into a procedure and a study and and write in books and overanalyze and take all of the actual practicing magic out of it. So there's something kind of funny there, a kind of both on academia and on English society, which permeates throughout the whole book. And then the characters themselves, uh, Mr. Norell is like considered one of the best, you know, theoretical magicians out there. Like he's owns almost every single book on magic. His library is the biggest. And what's funny is he's been able to practice magic for years and never told anyone. And then, you know, as it comes out that he can do magic, it's funny how he tries to kind of keep it keep the secrets limited and keep himself like with as much of the knowledge as possible. Like he'll own these books and then not let anyone else see them, including Jonathan Strange. who's kind of like the street smarts guy who kind of figured out magic on his own. And they have two very different approaches to how to perform magic and they come together. And like this book, you know, it's, it's super long. So their relationship kind of ebbs and flows, but the whole book is about the relationship between these two. And, you know, you put that against academia and English society, and it's going on during the Napoleonic Wars. You throw a little bit of masculine relationships in there, not romantic, but, you know, just like masculinity in terms of friendships and, and competition and academia and 
like how sometimes just your bravado can get in the way of your progress. And and that happens quite a bit in this story as well. And it, it makes and also just the pursuit of academia as well. Like they, they like the the fact of how they're trying to like become better and better magicians and ma- magic has been gone from England for so long and all they have are these books and they're just trying to learn more and more and pursue that. Like there's something about the pursuit of that that this book is also commenting on. I'm keeping it spoiler free. I won't go any further than that. But um, yeah, what you get is this really long saga and like that's kind of the background. Um so, I don't know, Dylan, you're in academia. Does any of that sound uh, kind of en- engaging to you? Yeah, especially <laughs> the idea of not being able to really practice magic among mm-hmm. these academics. And it, see, I'm a, I'm a counseling psychology PhD program, which is a little different than some of the other psychology programs which are entirely research-based so if you go to something like a social psychology phd program you're not going to get trained to be a practicing psychologist who sees clients or anything like that but they're still in the counseling psychology uh, programs it's still highly encouraged for people to go like heavily into research or into academia and stuff like that and Mm. lots of people who get those big time academic jobs, they don't even get licensed to practice psychology <laughs> at all or see right. any clients. I mean, uh, some do for sure, but it's, and there's also kind of, I think this attitude that in, in some way it's like more prestigious to be a researcher and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But again, it's like publishing and all these, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, uh, too, in, in my own way, like publishing in these academic journals just to be read by other people who don't really uh, uh, practice either. And it's like, who's actually getting this knowledge? And <laughs> exactly. what's the point of it if you're not actually applying it in any exactly. way? Yeah. I think psychology at least has these more clear applications, especially counseling psychology. So I appreciate that. That's part of why I'm in that field. But I definitely look around at some other fields and I uh, won't name names, but uh, yeah, some other areas that seem like it pretty much is just, uh, you know, publishing in peer reviewed journals right. that are only really seen by other people who basically do the same thing and no one does anything useful with the knowledge. And and right. that's a thing, even counseling psychology that has that more applied stuff has the same kind of problem for sure. So I like that part. Yeah, it's funny. You're academic, almost perfectly uh, describing like kind of the way academia is set up in this book. And it it never like makes a point like the narration is kind of scathing like Joe Bacrombie will write like oh this character's dimly aware of this like the narration is obviously having fun with these people but it never outwardly is like and this is bad you know it's just kind of showing things in this light that it's it's almost funny and it it's um you know the the kids have a phrase these days that's going around that's called um when they tell people to touch grass where you get you know this phrase touch Whoa. grass no, no, but the idea is yeah, like you're Charles, so to, far down the rabbit hole. Of like, Gen Z audience. I know. I know. Hey, Gen <laughs> Z, I, I'm with you guys. Basically, it comes from being on the computer so much and arguing with people that you don't spend any time in the real world. So, as an insult, people will say, You need to ah. touch grass. Like, you need to go outside. You need to get off of your computer and live in the real world. 
Um, so there's kind of a little bit of that happening where this obsession with the academic pursuit of magic and even defining what that is. Like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell have very different theoretical approaches to how to study magic and and the way they like become obsessed with each other and the pursuit of magic is, is really fun. And uh, it kind of, you know, to give you the description of Mr. Norell right here in the front, he hardly ever spoke of magic. And when he did, it was like a history lesson and no one could bear to listen to him. So this is a guy who can actually yes. perform feats of magic and he's one of two people in all of england known to be able to do it and people just don't like are not interested <laughs> because he's just you know he's kind of a closed off bookish kind of guy and everyone's like you know what i don't care that you can perform magic like imagine something as miraculous as magic and it's like how did you do that and he's like well actually it's a very interesting theory of this person combined with it and you're like you know what I don't care anymore. I'm going to go home. <laughs> like for magic, something is as, as crazy as magic. And um, well, that's yeah, that's part of that's part of the thing with magic, though, right? It's almost like the hard uh, magic system versus a soft magic system debate, if you want to call it a debate, where some people are way more into the soft magic systems because. Uh, those are the magic systems where you don't explain everything. Magic is just this sort of mysterious force mm -hmm. in contrast to those hard magic systems, which oftentimes someone like Brandon Sanderson does, where it's almost treated like a science where the reader is made to understand everything about how it works. But it's like explaining magic in that way. It's almost like explaining a joke, right? It's right. like the humor exactly. is sapped from it when you have to explain the joke the same way that the magic can be sapped from a uh, you know a spell or whatever they called in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell by right. explaining it in weirdly academic and scientific right. terms yeah right. there's a famous like they're taking quote, the magic the out of magic yeah it's like let me see if I can find this uh yeah here we go oh it's Arthur C. Clarke who said, mm -hmm. magic's just science that we don't understand yet. And mm. it sounds like that idea is toyed with a little bit in this novel. Yes, there is some of that. Like, it's funny how, you know, the Napoleonic Wars are going on and the generals are like, can, so can you do this? And he's like, well, that kind of goes against the thesis. Can you do this? He's like, well, you know, maybe if you do this. And they're just like, you're whatever, like go away uh, you know there's that like where it brushes up against government or politics or even like relationships it's like what can and can't magic do and it's interesting just how something as like you would imagine if someone could perform magic in the real world today like it would make all the headlines it would be crazy but they like announce that they can do magic and they have a hard time like gaining that notoriety sometimes and there's a humor in that too because it's something about like the englishness of oh, we're the best, we have the best Navy, we're fighting fine, like, we don't need magic. You know, like, that kind of stuff is in here, too. Um, one last bit about, uh, like, kind of the background of this before I um, get into the story. I'll just read the beginning here because it's the first two paragraphs here, super short, and uh, give you kind of a sense of what you're in for with the whole book. So this is the very beginning, so no spoilers. 
Some years ago, there was in the city of York a society of magicians. They met upon the third Wednesday of every month and read each other long, dull papers upon the history of English magic. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say, they had never harmed anyone by magic, nor ever done anyone the slightest good. In fact, to own the truth, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course, or changed a single hair upon anyone's heads. But, with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. It's like you can see how all those things are coming together right away at the beginning of the book. And it just doesn't stop for 800 massive pages, hundreds of thousands of words, probably like it just does not stop. And it's great. You definitely got me interested in this, Charles. I, <laughs> I think that premise is setting itself up for all sorts of interesting hijinks and like funny situations, but also yeah, you have the option to look at more insightful parallels between real-world academia and even, I think when you say it rubs up against the government and military stuff, you think of things almost like the Manhattan Project, right? Where mm -hmm. you've got uh, physicists working to create like uh, absolutely horrifying weapon and probably must have been a really strange i guess uh, yeah. what are those scientists uh, up to over there in the manhattan project <laughs> like uh, yeah it's weird away. rubbing up against of two very different ways of thinking you know mm -hmm. uh, but to, it does make me wonder by the way charles you keep mentioning uh, magic here and how they're actually able to cast spells what is the magic capable of in mm. the magic system of Jonathan Strange? So like that's very how funny. powerful is it? It's actually very funny, yeah, yeah. and you 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 come to find out there are limitations. Like it can do incredible things, but it can't do like just anything. And it's very soft in the way they explain it. It's like, oh, Jonathan combined this theory with that one to do this. And it reminds me, there's one scene where Mister Norell meets Jonathan Strange and is like, "Prove you can do magic." And he puts like a vase in front of a mirror and then like all of a sudden Mr. Norell starts like crying, like crying in awe. And a third person in the room is like, what's going on? Nothing happened. Mr. Norell's like, it's so beautiful. It's incredible. He swapped the reflection with the object. <laughs> and it's like, so it's like the object, you know, it's like the object was in the mirror and the reflection was uh, on the table, you know? So it's like, it can do weird things like that. Like, but it's all described very... It's so not the focus of the story where it's like... And then, like, he combined these theories and did some magic and then we moved on, you know? It's almost like the things that... And there's, like, sometimes weird rules that they have, like... Or paradoxes. But the paradoxes are, always seem so contrived, right? Where it's like, oh, you have to, like... You can't just do this. It has to be connected to that. And you're like, okay, that sounds kind of magic-y. But it, 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 it's very high level. I guess you would call that soft magic but there are obviously some kind of rules applied to it and um, I think the biggest thing is so much knowledge about magic is lost and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell are trying to figure out what it was and people that knew a lot back in the day like there's famous magicians from back in the day who were able to do all kinds of stuff um, but Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell are almost like 
playing at it. They have no idea what they're doing. And they're at this early stage where they're kind of discovering things and able to do little things that are seen as these huge accomplishments, like swapping a reflection with the real thing. Uh, but there's these like mythical people who could do whatever they wanted almost. So it is a huge range. It's undefined. Um, it doesn't go into detail on how they do it. It's kind of described as like, oh, he said this the spell that he read from this book uh, to make this happen. Like they can move mountains from or like move a city from one place to another or move a river around. And it's funny, I guess you can kind of say the Englishness of like imperialism where they're fighting the Napoleonic Wars and they're in like Spain or something. And they move a city or move the mountains next to a city or move a river around to win this battle. And the city's like, hey, could you put that back? And Jonathan Strange's like, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> and then he never does. And he just leaves and goes back to England. You know, <laughs> just leaves the city that was like once by a river. All of a sudden the river's gone. So stuff like that happens like constantly in this book. And it's kind of funny, um, the limitations that are set on it. But it's, it's very loosely defined. So I don't know if that answers your question or not. <laughs> no it does and i love the idea of these like that switching the reflection with the real thing yeah. that has no practical purpose and no like nothing academically that, such a huge accomplishment thing. right well <laughs> yeah i think of something like going back to the idea of publishing papers it's like sometimes you can get caught up on these things like oh wow like what a what an elegant like statistical analysis they use to get at this <laughs> problem here like it's so uh, i i've never been brought to tears but i have been like oh wow that's like really smart and really cool and the word elegant does get thrown around which is kind of weird when you think of like uh, statistical right. analysis but anyway it, it's like you can get so caught up on that as someone who has that understanding of like what goes into doing those analyses much mm -hmm. like the way that you'd think Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell have this understanding of what goes into uh, the process of magic but mm -hmm. you get so focused on that and how cool it is oh wow you really figured something out that it's like you lose total track of whether it matters or mm -hmm. not. That and you can also kind of push the boundaries, right? This like, problem. It yeah. kind of goes that way too, where sometimes Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell do something and it's almost like unnatural or uncomfortable in practice, like reanimating a dead body or something where it's like, whoa, I don't know if you should have ever done that. I guess you could equate it to like the, um, you know, some kind of, unsanctioned psychological experiment that you know right. you're like stanford prison experiment or something, yeah, something like that, like that where it's known like for being unethical and it's like hey i've made this person totally shut down <laughs> like through my powers of psychology i can render someone so emotionally damaged that they can't like function anymore isn't that like really interesting and it's like i mean i guess that's a discovery but it's horrible like why would you ever do that you know your pursuit of something can kind of get you too far down the rabbit hole sometimes. And, and that's kind of what this book does a little bit. And that's kind of what I wanted to get into next is, um, you know, the book is 800 pages. So it's like, what's the story and how can it go for 800 pages? And that's, you know, no one could really tell me what the book was about. It's like, Oh, it's set in the 19th century. And you've got these two magicians who are, you know, rubbing elbows in English society with magic and you're like, okay, but what's the story? 
and the story doesn't readily present itself i will say that but it almost doesn't matter each chapter and the chapters are relatively short like 10 15 pages uh per chapter but um they're almost like episodic in nature like they almost all tell like a complete little story and they'll bounce around from different characters or different situations sometimes it'll be just like they'll meet like it'll be one of their wives or something who will do a thing um there's other characters throughout this that i won't get into but for sake of time but they get their own stories too and each chapter kind of is its own little mini i call it episodic little mini episode and then there's kind of that slow overarching larger plot um, that's not really kind of ever really in the focus until like the rising action towards the end. Um, but reading it in that way, you can kind of get lost in it. I think some people who like aren't in the mood for this kind of story will complain and say it's like super dry and, and slow and it's not like kind of meandering around, but it's like I am saying it's really not like each chapter is episodic and it's just kind of immersing you in this in this world. And that's when I say like the it made me really enjoy the practice of reading it because I could just pick it up, read a chapter, get absorbed in that story and, and come back the next day. And it's another, you know, different episode. Right. It's like watching the episode of a show you enjoy um, um, and it just kept going and you start to learn more about who might some of these more villainous people be, who might some of these people in danger might be. You're picking up on the themes. You're laughing the whole way because the prose is really, really excellent. And what's funny is this was around the holidays and the book I read right before this was Charles Dickens. Actually, I read A Christmas Carol, which is so beautifully well written and it's so short too. It's like, you know, this thin maybe like a hundred pages and so it's like the exact opposite of the of this kind of a story but reading dickens could fit and, eight of them inside of yeah. <laughs> oh, you could of fit a like way more than eight off. you could fit like you know maybe 50 <laughs> but um it's, oh my wow it's so thin i can hold it up but uh maybe more like you know 15 but um 15 anyway that is all to say there were some interesting similarities in the voice of the story. You're like Dickens has his own, like that you can tell there's a narrator who's like, I will describe him to you or readers may understand this. So when I say this character's doing this, you know that they like, you know, like that kind of voice, it, it, like the author, you know, Susanna Clark, the author of this story will sometimes do that it's like now readers you know that this is a thing and maybe you felt this way well i can tell you when jonathan strange was sitting here thinking of this he was doing that too like that kind of way of telling a story it's people describe this book as like a romantic style of writing and i think that's a part of it like um it's it's got this whole like commentary it breaks the fourth wall every once in a while to talk to the audience and it's it's um rec- it's a book about academia so there's a ton of these footnotes and i think i read somewhere that there's over 200 footnotes in this book there's a footnote oh, on like wow. you know every other page almost and sometimes you have a page that's more footnote than text like there'll be footnotes that are two pages long 
I, it's kind of funny sometimes how much these footnotes play a part in this book. And it almost kind of at the same time serves the purpose that footnotes do, but just by the nature of having like a two-page footnote, sometimes it makes fun of the idea of footnotes, and then sometimes it'll credit Jonathan Strange's book that he hasn't published yet, but it'll include it, like, it'll just cite the source, so it's like citing these fake sources from the characters themselves, like, so, like, when you combine those two things, it's like romantic, episodic, like, immersive storytelling with footnote, 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 like, this is academic, and then you have this uh, Dickens-style prose it's makes it like this wholly unique original story that i think that's what kept me captivated for so long i was like i haven't read something like this in a long 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 time and i was enjoying it and coming right off of charles dickens too an english author right there who i enjoy um just charles the practice loves the of british writing. people I, I sure do i'm an advocate for the for the british people and um yeah just like the way that they write, it's when you consider like, oh, he's a talented author with a strong voice like Dickens. Susanna Clark is, is has that ability, has that skill. And we had a conversation offline about like what it means for an author to have voice. And I don't know, but Susanna Clark just has this style about her that's like so next level that when you read it and I get, you know, to go back to when I said it's a like a writer's book where you read this and you're like i don't think i could ever write this like this is a writer who's just writing this beautiful like romantic story it's like a master class and like it's one of those almost unobtainable seeming kind of um accomplishments and i don't know how she kept me captivated for so long and i think a lot of it has to do with that voice and that episodic storytelling so really just a interesting combination of of story elements in this book that all service the characters and all service the themes and like it never takes as a satire it never takes itself too seriously which i like really appreciate and then i'll kind of wrap it up by saying you know the the, the ending i thought was very satisfying because like how could you end a 1000 page monster and i i just walked away from that being like that was a nice that was such a great way to wrap this up. It was like very poetic ending, very nice. Um, like it, it had a little bit of, for a book that was kind of super high level, it did get a little bit of rising action moment towards the end. There was some kind of reveals at the end. And then it had this kind of thought provoking ending. So yeah, overall, I'm going to kind of turn it over to you for some reaction, but uh, that's my take on Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Highly recommend. And um there's a, a lot to really get into here if we ever go down that path of um, getting into the spoilers of this. But for now, if anything I've said has even somewhat tempted you, give it a chance. If you've got like a long break coming up where you're ready to just get into reading or if you feel like you haven't like enjoyed the you read a lot, but you feel like you have it's become more of a chore lately. Break up your schedule with this and you'll and you'll you'll be glad you did because um it definitely fueled this this kind of um, love of like actually just sitting by, <laughs> sitting on the couch and reading for an hour. You know, it was such a great, it was just a, an enjoying thing to do for me uh, with this book. So, highly recommend. 
Yeah, I definitely want to get into it at some point. You might have to bring it to a friend's pitching fantasy because I did. I've been really <laughs> effusive about it, Charles. Oh, way back. Right? <laughs> this was way a back. long time ago, yeah. I mean, that was probably like two years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. It's, it's cool hearing you talk about an 800-page book with footnotes as a sort of palate cleanser, <laughs> a thing to help you break a reading slump. Because whenever I hear a anything over like 600 pages, let's say, I'm like, oh, dear god (laughs) like this is gonna be a whole thing trying to get through this and hopefully it's worth it and rewarding but i I see it more as like when you got the momentum going you keep it going with something like that rather than a book to break a reading slump Mm -hmm. Uh, usually i go for something a little bit shorter let alone the idea then of footnotes and this sort of it sounds like academic style writing without a lot of action yeah, what is it, Charles, about this book that despite all of that, you found it to be such a great book to That's a great to question. build that enthusiasm? And I kind of I had the up. same thing with Babel actually, where I was like, is this gonna be too academic for me? Like, I don't know if I'm gonna be interested in something. And like I wouldn't that. recommend Babel as like, oh, you're in a reading slump, like get right. back with and Babel. I would right. much sooner recommend Poppy War trilogy for something like that because of its pacing. Right. And I think that's the key difference here. I think that's the key difference because Jonathan Strange is not necessarily an act like the book itself is not academic. It's actually presented in this very romantic style, classic style way of like when you consider like the English classics that are more like entertainment focused, like a Dickens type author. Um, This book is reads more like that than it does like a a uh, like a. What was it? A something Academic retort tome, or, or like a what was the <laughs> tonal retort? A tonal retort. Yeah, a tonal retort. It, it's not like a tonal <laughs> yeah. retort. You're gone on that phrase. <laughs> I'm just. I believe it to be true. I just want to know what what it means because I like the sound of it. It sounds like it sounds like Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell approach this idea of like aren't academics uh, stuck in their ivory towers with a sort of witty like fun ish way of dealing with it like Mm -hmm. isn't it silly how they do that and i would say the tonal retort of babble is like this is not silly this is dangerous and imperialistic yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, Uh, malicious i see i see that could be where the tonal retort is because at the end of the day this reads almost kind of like a fairy tale in a lot of ways it is kind of as much as it lampoons like English society and culture, it, it is very much an English book. So there's some kind of. See, I just dropped the book and shook my whole desk. Um, it is. It is. Um, <laughs> Watch out, Chihuahuas! <laughs> I tried to hold it one-handed. That was the other thing. Like trying to read this book, I like at certain angles, you just couldn't hold it for too long because, it was, like, one-handed, just holding it open, you're like, I gotta like switch arms. It's like. Charles. <laughs> You know that uh, so saga, one of our favorite graphic novel, our favorite, I would say, graphic yeah, yeah. novel series. I have that giant compendium. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know that, that one. And I like reading it is so difficult, like it physically to hold that thing and keep right. moving through right. it. Right, so Monst- sometimes those big books can get one like of that. Those is is like that too. 
but yeah, it's it's, it's exactly that same experience. And um, but anyway, I will say yeah. So it's not like oh, like these people are actually like evil, and there, there's like you know there, there's a lot to criticize, actively criticize. Like I don't think Susanna Clark is actively criticizing or calling for the change for anything. Like she's just kind of at the end of the day, she's telling almost like a fairy tale. And like the ending is very um, like classic literature where it's like rooted in like themes and, and symbolism. And it's, and it's like, uh, you know, it's very, uh, I'm going to say romantic again. Um, so I can guess like, uh, uh, Rebecca Kwong does not pull punches and uh, she's <laughs> much more active in her in her scathing is scathing right so i can i guess that could be the tone yeah. of retort right there because that's true this is this is at the end of the day like a fun um story and it keeps it kind of lighthearted, even though there's some heavy stuff that happens and you know there's life and death stuff and there's depression stuff and there you know that's all in here um relationship challenges um all that's in here and like some people meet pretty tragic fates uh it is it is at the end of the day like a positive story so i, I guess that could be the tonal retort of like oh you you let academia off too easy what if they were actually imperialistic and like chain their students to desks well, and used them for evil <laughs> no, no no so i do want to i want to say it's handled more subtly by Rebecca Kwong there. It's not like, oh, these evil academics just being explicitly evil. It's more like a, a pernicious uh, evil, right? It's like uh, it has these harmful effects, but it's much more gradual or like, uh, I guess, implicit to how the system is set up rather than the individuals within the system necessarily being like having uh being malevolent mm -hmm. it's kind of the system that gets blamed and then the people's like ignorance to change it who are benefiting from the system or, or lack of initiative to change it it's 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 not as like they're evil as as it might sound but it's it sounds like this one's less academic in tone less dense than babble and it's a little more tongue-in-cheek sounds like the magic system is very hard in babble too right you've got like the silver it, that it is harder like, harder mm -hmm. for sure it's not like mistborn by sanderson right, right. with uh, explaining everything but it is pretty clear how the magic system works and i think different books but yeah the idea of two books in 19th century england and dealing with academic uh, culture just in two very different ways mm -hmm. if you do want to hear more about Babel, there's an episode a little while back where i kind of take the role that charles is taking in this episode mm -hmm. where i've read the book charles has it and do a spoiler free discussion so maybe you can Try to get an idea of the tonal retort yourself if you haven't yet read one or both of these books. So this this is cool though, Charles. I, I you have me kind of eager to get into it, but then I look at my TBR and what we have going on here at the <laughs> yeah. podcast. I'm not sure exactly when that'll be, and I can't I can't imagine you're gonna want to reread 
very soon. I mean, it is a right. long book, even if you really enjoyed it. Right. So, yeah. It's, there is also a BBC a show while. as well, which I've never seen. It was on Netflix for a brief period, but it's not anymore. So, um, not sure. I was you surprised you didn't bring that up, actually. I was going to bring it up that, um, yeah, there's that BBC show, and you're talking how much that the book read in an episodic manner. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, there we go. Well, that makes sense. It lends itself really well then to it a does. show with, I believe it had, it was like a mini series, had seven episodes, if I. Yeah, I'd be curious how they condensed it down to seven episodes because a lot flipping goes on in this book. But, um, uh, yeah, it, it does lend itself to that kind of montages so, yeah yeah montages yeah exactly just two guys flipping pages yeah, in the dark i have the tiger like, in the background flip a page write something down goes to the chalkboard so yeah and then what they do is they swap an object with its reflection and then they're like yeah we did it huge success so that's it guys well charles I think this episode was a huge success. And Thank you. I am. <laughs> I would agree. I am. I'm sold, and I I imagine a lot of the listeners are probably sold too because it's it's great to hear when you're As so someone in academia excited and passionate be about kind of book fun and, for you to check it out. Yeah, you know, for sure. But uh, anyway, okay. I've had a lot of fun, Charles. And I, I hope you did too. I hope the listeners did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's time that those listeners turn their attention to some sweet, sweet outro music. Oh, let's get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping. Thank you, everyone, one and all, for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, if you want to reach out to us, support the show, give us a follow over on social media. That's at the FTF Podcast on Instagram and at the FTF Podcast with a number one at the end on Twitter. Now, Dylan, if they like what they heard today and they want to support the show even further than following with us, talking to us on social media, what can they do? Toss five stars to our podcast, which you can now do on Spotify, where most of you are listening. Just two clicks at the top of that Friends Talking Fantasy podcast feed. You can also rate and or review on Apple Podcasts, but... Just listening is more than enough. Thank you so much for doing that. Just listening, guys. Thank you so, so much. We greatly appreciate it. You guys.